Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Luke. In this session, we're going to be beginning Luke chapter 15. The reality is Luke 15 is one, uh, really one unit of thought. It all goes together, but there's so much material there, we're going to break it into two chunks. And so specifically in this recording, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. And then in our next session, we'll get 11 and following, which is the well-known story of the prodigal son. But all of this goes together as one real unit of thought, one really tight package. Just to set it in its context, in Luke 14, Jesus has talked about welcoming the lame, the poor, the blind, the people that are on the outskirts and marginalized in society. And he, in that context in Luke 14, specifically mentions eating with them, like inviting them to your banquets and eating with them. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is doing in his ministry. And the Pharisees are taking issue with that. And that's really the setup for this whole section, is the fact that Jesus is welcoming the marginalized, especially the well-known sinners, and he's eating with them. And the religious leaders just can't possibly understand why he would do that. Um, the tax collectors, the sinners, are coming to Jesus and gathering around him, and he's eating with them, and he's welcoming them, and the Pharisees complain. It makes zero sense in their religious world. This section is really composed of three stories. In response to that complaint from the Pharisees, you get a parable about a lost sheep, you get a parable about a lost coin, and then you get a parable that involves two brothers, one of whom is often known as the prodigal son, the lost son. Um, and notice that, that we go from one in a hundred to one in ten. So there's one sheep out of a hundred, there's one coin out of ten coins, and then there's one brother out of two. Um, you go from a sheep, which is property, you go from a coin, which is, in the context of the parable, a very valuable piece of property, to a son and a brother, a person, a family member. And so property, valuable property, son, you know, family member. And, and so the whole thrust of this is narrowing down to one out of two and a member of your own family, a kinsman. And as we walk through this section and walk through these stories, just some themes to pay attention to. One theme is just the whole theme of searching and finding. In every case, there's a kind of searching and finding that happens. Another theme to pay attention to is the calling together and rejoicing. So it's not just finding something, it's what happens when they are found. There's calling people together and rejoicing about the finding. And, and then there's this idea of rejoicing specifically in heaven. Um, and all of this is Jesus' way of explaining what's happening in his ministry. And it answers the question, what is the connection between God's purposes and sinners? Uh, what is the connection between God's kingdom and tax collectors and sinners and those who are rejected and marginalized by society? So with that, let's jump in and look at the details. Luke chapter 15, verse 1, 
says this, Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. And so you have tax collectors and sinners, two categories of people that were clearly um, not like people who should be you know, in the kingdom of God from the Pharisees' perspective. The tax collectors were those who were traitors. They worked in league with the Romans. They got rich off Roman oppression. Um, and so certainly they're not going to be welcomed in the kingdom of God. Sinners is sort of a catch-all category for those people who are at the, really, they're just not faithful Jews, and they don't try to keep the law, and they're on the outskirts. And so these people, these kinds of people, are gathering around Jesus, and they're gathering to specifically listen to him. They want to hear him teach, which means they're open to his teaching, and they're open to what he's saying. And for whatever reason, the way Jesus teaches and who Jesus is draws these kinds of people to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, well, they can't understand it. This makes zero sense. So verse 2, And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to complain, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Um, we've talked about who the Pharisees and the scribes are, and oftentimes from our vantage point as Christians, because of scenes like this in the gospel, we look down on the Pharisees and the scribes. But in Jesus' day, they were the popular religious teachers. They were the ones who were trying to be holy and really keep the law. They were oftentimes the religious heroes for little Jewish boys. And so it's not people they looked down on. It's often people they looked up to. And they began to complain, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And that statement is in the present tense, which means it's an ongoing pattern. This is not just something he does once in a while. This is an ongoing pattern with Jesus. And from their perspective, he's clearly not avoiding sin. I mean, if, if he really were a wise religious teacher, he would not be doing this. To be uh, fellowshipping with these people, to be eating with these people, he's clearly not avoiding sin. And the significance of eating with them is huge. It would be difficult to overstate how important eating was and table fellowship was in cultures around the Mediterranean basin in the first century. It showed who counted. It showed who was in and who was out. That's why in chapter 14, when Jesus talks about inviting the lame and all that, it leads to this whole discussion of the kingdom of God and who's blessed in the kingdom of God and all that. Because this kind of meal setting communicated those sorts of themes, like who's faithful? Like tended to eat with like, and eating with other people said that you you believe that they were in the right, that they were good, particularly if you're a religious teacher like Jesus. And so this, this uh, practice of eating with tax collectors and sinners clearly shows that Jesus can't possibly be a righteous teacher. In response to that, Jesus is going to tell three stories. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son, or the prodigal son as we often call it. We're going to get the first two in this recording. And so the first story is the story of the lost sheep, which is really an appropriate story for the point that Jesus wants to make and for what Jesus feels like the Pharisees need to see. The reason for that is because God was frequently pictured in the Old Testament as a shepherd. And so this story aptly deals with the topic at hand. 
God and God's purposes and Israelites who have strayed away from the fold. That's the subject. How would God respond to those? Well, let's listen to a story about a shepherd and how he responds to a sheep who has wandered away from the fold. Verse 3, And so he, Jesus, told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the other ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? So even a shepherd or maybe the owner of the sheep who has shepherd working for him in this case, it's not 100% clear in the parable, but if he's got a hundred sheep and 99 are safe and secure, but one one wanders away. And so when he's gathering the sheep together, right? And he's like, oh man, we're missing one. Now, which person will not go looking for that sheep? And the assumed answer is everybody would do that. Every shepherd would do that. Every owner of the sheep who has shepherd, maybe his sons and daughters working for him, that's what he would expect the shepherd to do. Everyone would do that. You lose a sheep, you go find the sheep. Um, and uh, shepherds tended to work in teams or at least in pairs. And so when this uh, shepherd goes and looks for the missing sheep, it's not like the 99 are unattended to, right? There's the assumption of the original audience would be that there's somebody there to watch the 99 while this person goes to look for the the other missing sheep. And so he leaves them in the open pasture, which is the place where the sheep are grazing until they're gathered together to settle into the pen for the night. And so he's going to leave them there in the open pasture with his partner, uh, shepherd, and he's going to go look for the missing sheep. That's what he's going to do. Um, that's just the expected assumed thing that any owner of sheep, any good shepherd would do. So verse five, and when he has found it, he puts it on his shoulders rejoicing. He's relieved. He's grateful. Found that sheep. And he puts it over his shoulders and carries it back to the other sheep. Uh, the sheep is now found. And we could actually expect maybe the story to end here. But this story, because of the setting, isn't just about finding the missing sheep. It's also about the reaction of people because the Pharisees are reacting negatively to lost sinners being found. And so the story continues in verse 6. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my sheep that was lost. Let the celebration begin. Personal joy becomes community joy. And so in this dramatized sheep story, uh, that's why it seems here almost like it's the owner of the sheep, not just his sons or daughters who are watching the sheep as his shepherds or maybe a hired shepherd, right? It seems like it's the owner because now he's found the sheep, returns them to uh, the other 99. He's, the sheep are going to be gathered into the pen. This guy comes home and he calls together his friends. Man, we had this sheep. It was missing. Oh, we found it. Let the celebration begin. And so he's sharing his joy with others because uh, this sheep that was lost has now been found. And then Jesus makes this point. He says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. 
couple little notes there. The first one is notice joy in heaven, which is a way of talking about God and God's joy. And what this is doing is really trying to shift their picture of God. What kind of person is God? Is God the kind of person who once a person wanders off, he just leaves them to their own devices? He could care less. Oh, they got found. Uh, he's right. They're such a bad. Or what kind of person is God? This is trying to shift the Pharisees and the scribes' picture of God. God is a person who rejoices, who gets excited and wants to share that joy. Right? He rejoices over sinners who had been lost and now are found. What kind of person is God? He's a person who rejoices when lost sheep lost people get found. Now, what about that last line, over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance? It's it's possible that, that, that we just take that straight forward. Don't want to discount that. That's possible. But in the context of Jesus' total teaching that says everybody needs repentance, yes, he's told parables in the Gospel of Luke where some people owe more and some people owe less, like Luke chapter 7 and the parable of the two debtors in the context of that story at the end of the chapter there in Luke 7, right? You have one that owes 500 denarii and one that owes 50, but they both owe it, right? And, and we see this throughout Jesus' teaching. Even in this context, when we get to the last story, the parable of the prodigal son, you get the younger son and the older son, and in both those cases, repentance is needed. Um, and so I tend to suspect in the context of Jesus' total teaching, that this is a little bit of gentle irony. Uh, don't know for sure, but that's sort of the way it seems. When he says uh, people who need no repentance, it's seeming, I think, to refer to people who are so sure of their own righteousness that they don't think they have any need to repent before God. They don't think they owe anything to God for which they need to be forgiven, and thus they need no repentance. So I, I tend to think that line shouldn't be taken at straightforward face value, but more as kind of gentle, a uh, little gentle irony. Like, God rejoices over sinners who repent than over 99 people who think they don't need any repentance. That's the way I tend to think we should read that. Uh, but could be straightforward. Uh, could be wrong on that, but that, that seems to make sense in the context of Jesus' total teaching. Now, Jesus continues then with a second story. So in the story of the lost sheep, it's one sheep out of a hundred. This time, it's one coin out of ten. And just like in the story of the lost sheep, pay attention to, to the effort to find the missing item. Like, if this item is valuable, there's effort to find it, right? While there was effort to find the sheep, there's going to be effort to find the coin. Here's the story of the lost coin, verse 8. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, doesn't light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? The word for coin here is a, a Greek drachma which was roughly equivalent to a Roman denarius, about a day's wage. And so it's a fairly hefty amount, right? It would be very valuable. And if you're, if you're just a peasant, a fairly poor peasant, and you don't have a whole lot, that's a significant amount of money. You'll lose a whole day's wage, right? And that's going to be a lot. 
Some have suggested this may be part of her dowry, and that's why she's so distraught and looks so hard for it. And while that's possible, it's purely speculative. There's nothing in the text that would uh, make that the case or indicate that's the case. It's just one of ten silver coins, one drachma, one roughly day's wage. And so the point is, she's a relatively poor woman. This coin is valuable enough that she... To lose it is significant, and so she searches for it with effort. She lights a lamp, she gets out her broom, she sweeps the house to make you know to try to find it, and she searches for this coin. And once again, when she finds it, she shares her happiness with her friends. Look at verse nine. And when she when she has found this coin, she calls together her friends, her neighbors, saying. Rejoice with me, I found the coin which I had lost. I can imagine the situation when she realizes she's missing a coin and it's a significant amount. She tells maybe some people who are living right next to each other. Well, you've got to remember, we're in a, a tight culture where everybody lives right next to each other and everyone's super close. And she's like, oh, I've lost my coin. I can't believe it. And she goes back into the house. She lights a lamp. She searches for it. When she finds it, she... She tells everybody, I found it, I found it, I found it, I found my coin. And she's inviting them to share in her joy. Rejoice with me because uh, this one coin out of ten, which was lost, has now been found. Verse 10 again makes the point. In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Notice, in the presence of the angels. Who's in the presence of the angels? Well, God is. And then once again, this is a way of referring to the fact that God is the one rejoicing. And so God is rejoicing over one sinner who repents. And once again, Jesus is trying to challenge and adjust their picture of God. What is God like? Well, God's a person who gets excited and rejoices when one sinner, one person who's wandered from the fold, one person who's lost, um, is now found. God rejoices in that. So far, Jesus' response to the Pharisees and scribes is, a shepherd celebrates when lost sheep is found. A woman celebrates when some money is found. And here you are complaining, complaining about people being found. And all of that sets up the third story, the story of the prodigal son. But we'll save that for our next session.